Feeling overwhelmed and frustrated by the obstacles you face? Well, you're not alone. The Resiliency Ninja is here to help. Allison Graham is a speaker, author, and business coach. But most importantly, she's on a mission to give you tools to succeed in times when it feels like life sucks. Now, here's your host, Allison Graham. Welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast. I'm Allison Graham, your host. And if you love what you hear, please be sure to rate, to subscribe, and pop a review in the comments below. And if you know someone who could benefit from the conversation you are about to hear, please be sure to share it with them. And I know that this conversation is going to be extremely powerful for anyone who has special needs children, who has gone through a difficult pregnancy, who is in business and needs to communicate for, from a PR perspective, uh, and who is navigating the healthcare system. This guest who we have here is someone who I've known for years and brought her on the show because I know there is a really incredible public figure story and she's been really successful and there's a private story that is now public behind the scenes as well. So my guest today is Cynthia Lockery. Hello, Cynthia. Hello, how are you? So great. I'm so glad we got to do this. And I think we should let our listeners know. So we originally met, oh my gosh, how many years? Was it 15, 20 years ago? Oh, do we have to admit it? Yes, I would say it's between 15 to 20 years ago when I uh, worked in London. Ontario. That's right. And where I live. And then I remember you're like, all of a sudden you're going out West and you were going to work. Right. So many people go West and you were going to work for a town that was hosting the Olympics or something. So what Uh, was it? What was the deal that took you away from our little town of London, Ontario? It was just an awesome opportunity. Uh, Vancouver was hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics. And I went out to help at the city of Richmond, which was a venue city for long track speed skating. And so I was there for four years helping before the Olympics, full on running a media center in a celebration site where we got about 650,000 people in 18 days hundreds of international media, and then post-Olympics, doing all the wrap-up, the reports, what worked, what didn't work. And it was just an incredible four years where I gave birth to a child partway through all that chaos. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. And we're definitely going to be talking about the babies and your experience and everything that happened. But before we get into that personal side, from a PR perspective, there must have been stories of crisis that happened during that time for Vancouver for the Olympics. Was there any cool story that kind of sticks out in your mind? Well, here's one that was before the Olympics. I had been two months on the job in Richmond, and it was a Friday afternoon. And crises, is, by the way, always happen on Friday afternoons. They never happen on Monday morning. <laughs> Okay, and we're recording on a Friday afternoon, so, so we may get called away. Let's exactly. A minute. Okay. And I was getting ready to go out with my husband. We didn't have children at the time. And somebody came in my office and said, you know, a plane just crashed downtown. And I was like, what? 
Well, sure enough, Richmond um, is host to the Vancouver airport. Well, a Cessna, which is a smaller airplane, had crashed into a high-rise building. 500 people evacuated. English was not anybody's first language. A number of residents from mainland China that didn't speak English. So two months on the job, I met a scene dealing with all the chaos, um, rush hour traffic, road closures, evacuations, and then a reception center trying to help these residents who didn't speak English. And if you're in communications and public relations, it's all about your messaging. Well, imagine saying, okay, you need to say this and it being translated and you have no idea if your message is getting across, you have no idea the nuance of the questions coming because they're being translated. So to me, coming from London, where it's predominantly English, to Richmond, where it's predominantly Mandarin and Cantonese, was just a completely new experience. And I realized then the difference when you're working on an international level, which was the Olympics as well. It, it's a whole new playing field. So do, is it, do you have a trick to stay calm in a situation like that? Like, how do you not left, uh, let the emotion, the fear, everything that must have been going through your mind and your heart and your feeling at that time, how do you maintain your jo job and compartmentalize all of that severity of the situation? It's pretty intense. You're right, because I'm watching people crying, people not knowing if their loved ones are there. And the plane, when it hit, went on a sideways. And there's a picture somewhere still around. A woman was standing there in this gaping hole because it had gone into her apartment and her husband was injured. So for me at the scene, I just go into work mode. Okay, what are my key messages? I always do with the state the obvious. We have a plane in a building, emergency crews are on the site evacuating and stay away from the area due to traffic congestion. And then, you know, that's all obvious and it buys me time to figure out what the heck is going on here. Right. And I also, because it was a Friday, once again, Friday, it was casual Friday. So I'm in jeans and like, <laughs> I don't know, a hoodie. And so, of course, I don't look the least bit professional to talk to the media. So I found an RCMP officer who was media trained. And I said, you have to be the spokesperson because you look like you have authority. I do not. So then I had to work with somebody else now and give them the messaging and make them say it. So it added another level. But you have to quickly assess and say, what's going to bring the most calm to people and make them feel this is under control. Right. Even if there's no calm to really be had, I mean, that would be a horrible situation. In the end, was it, was it worked out? Was anybody killed in that accident? I remember it. The pilot, the pilot, the pilot died yeah. and there were a couple of injuries. And I, if I recall, it was well over a year before every resident could move back into the building. Oh gosh. That's scary. That's yeah. Awful. And, and we, thank goodness, the sprinkler system went off when the plane hit because it had just taken off from the airport. So it had a full tank of fuel and it could have set the whole building on fire. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. All right. So that is the PR side. And you have now though moved into using your PR skills in patient advocacy. And there's a story behind the scenes that is, has had this. So I, I should let you know, uh, Cynthia has actually written two books now. One is called Bed Rest Mom, Surviving Pregnancy-Related Bed Rest with Your Sanity and Dignity Intact, which I love the subtitle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure that's great. And then a brand new book that is coming out this September 2018 Your Child's Voice, A Caregiver's Guide to Advocating for Kids with Special Needs, Disabilities, or Others Who May Fall Through the Cracks. Wow. Two very powerful books that are available. Tell me how this came to be that you even got passionate. What, What launched your passion for these topics? And it's crazy. If you had talked to me, you know, before I had children, I would have thought you were crazy that I would ever do this or that it was even a career. But what happened is um, I moved to Richmond for the Olympics. Two weeks on the job, I had a miscarriage. So when we left London, we found out we were pregnant. Uh, We were really excited, drove across Canada, started a new job, new city, new province. And two weeks into my job, I have a miscarriage and it was a pretty bad one. So I was off work for a couple of weeks. So imagine what that was like and didn't know anybody. So, so, okay. I just want to pause you for a second there. The reaction from your new coworkers and your boss at the time, were they supportive or did you feel any guilt taking that time off from a new job? Actually, my boss, who is a bachelor, was incredible, just incredible. I don't think he knew how to react, but he was supportive. My coworkers were women. I was the only person that had a child at that point or pregnant. They were single and they just were so supportive. And then I went off and I came back and I ended up getting pregnant with my daughter. And this is where the supportive when I got pregnant with her it was uh, January of 20, 2008, and the Olympics were 2010. And a couple of women, always women, which is interesting, co-workers said to me, did you do this on purpose? You know, the Olympics are coming. Are you kidding me? Nope. <laughs> what kind of a biatch do you have to be <laughs> to suggest a pregnancy is on purpose to get out of work? Oh, it was just as shocking. So then I um, was pregnant with my daughter and, you know, I've had this miscarriage. So anybody who has a rainbow baby, which is a pregnancy after loss, it's always walking on eggshells because you think something's going to happen. Um, and is that because physically it's high probability something's going to happen or is it an emotional piece where you you feel that fear because you've been through it all emotional because one in four pregnancies if not more because sometimes people miscarriage and didn't even know they were pregnant right but one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage it for the most part it doesn't make a difference with your next pregnancy but you tell a woman that's had a miscarriage that it's all going to be fine the next time. I don't know one woman that's going to believe that they're all it's, it's very stressful. So then um, 
when I was in 25 weeks, I was put on bed rest for the rest of my pregnancy. And I'm in this new city. I know nobody. I have three months of laying on a couch on home-based bed rest with a few um, hospitalizations with bleeding. And one night they were going to medevac me to Seattle for the remainder of my pregnancy. There were no beds left in Canada for high risk. It was Canada Day weekend. So they said, okay, the Learjet's coming. We get Learjets, by the way, when you've got mountains to fly over. <laughs> we don't have that coolness here in Ontario. We just get little helicopters. But anyway. I thought Learjet, it would have been cool. But I begged them. I promised them I wouldn't bleed. And I, I, I promised. So if I could stay in Canada, I don't know how, what. Anyways, in retrospect, I really should have gone to Seattle. Now that I know what I know with my second pregnancy. but. It was a turning point because I had some bad, my family doctor had done some things with my pregnancy that weren't kosher. I wasn't uh, treated as high risk from her, but when I saw an OB, they were just mortified by some of the things I'd been allowed to do because I was so high risk. And it was a turning point. I realized I have to start not just assuming everything's going along tickety-boo. I need to be advocating for myself and I need to figure out what the heck is going on here. And that was just a little bit. And then you fast forward to my next pregnancy with my son and we were back in Ontario at this point. And I just had that feeling that it wasn't right, that something wasn't right. And sure enough, I had another high-risk pregnancy, and this time I was admitted to London Hospital for two months to lay in a bed on antenatal, on hospital bed rest, because I was too high-risk for my community hospital in Sarnia. So now I'm an hour and a half away from my three-year-old daughter and my husband for two months. Aww. The yeah, little doodle. I mean, the husband can handle it, but the the three year old that must have been heartbreaking. I I cried myself to sleep every night. Um, every time I heard another woman's child come to visit, I'd cry. Mm. I was sure I was causing psychological trauma that my daughter would never recover from which I found out kids just live in the moment. She still doesn't, she kind of remembers I was away, but she remembers having lots of sleepovers at her grandparents and having fun. But during that pregnancy, it was interesting because I lived in a hospital. I was not sick. I just had a placenta over my cervix. And I got to talk to the doctors, the residents. I was teaching at Western University at the time. And residents would come and ask me questions. I was from my bedside editing and reviewing patient pamphlets because they found out that I was in public relations. And so I started working, doing some volunteer work for the hospital from my bed. And my OB said to me, listen, we have this perinatal council, which is a medical board for nurses and doctors for maternal health and neonatal and we need a patient voice on that council and that was when my life changed i gave birth to my son very traumatic um, spent a few weeks in neonatal intensive care 
unit with him. And then when he was three months old, for the next three years, I volunteered as the only patient on this medical committee. And it was just so enlightening. So as you're going through, I'm just thinking about where, where uh, like my curiosity is so peaked here. So your son ultimately was healthy and was okay in the end, or were you also caring for him in a special needs capacity and doing this other advocacy work? At that point, we didn't know he had special needs. Um, we were just trying to recover from um, a traumatic childbirth where he was resuscitated, I was resuscitated, different rooms. I was general anesthetic C-section. I didn't even see my son for 12 hours, I think. And we didn't know he was special. He had this special needs until he was about three years old. But we were, there were things that were going on with him that now make sense looking back. But I just thought, this is having two kids. I didn't realize um, until we moved to Vancouver Island and saw a new pediatrician, all the different things that my son had going on with him. Hmm. Very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so the advocacy is, so I find it interesting that on a hospital group, and this is my experience as well, by the way, in the patient as a patient and having to advocate for myself. Often the conversation happens in isolation of the par pa patient experience. They think they're embracing the patient experience because they're talking about it from a patient experience. But many of my doctors have never experienced pain and have never experienced, like, been on the other side of the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I found too, I would be in these meetings. I'll give you a great example. We're in this meeting and they're talking about marijuana use in pregnancy. And here's a pamphlet they want to distribute. So they distribute this pamphlet around the table. It's all doctors and nurses. I'm chuckling because, you know, a pamphlet would solve everything. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's nothing better than a brochure. Oh, that's yeah. what we say in communications. And for anybody who actually thinks that's true, it's not. We were, I'm re they're, they're like, yep, this looks good. Yep, this looks good. And I was like, okay, who is this pamphlet for? The doctors or the parent, the mother? And they said, well, this is for the mother. And I'm like, and it looked like something out of medical journal. Oh. And I said, for the mother that is smoking so much pot that you have to give her a pamphlet. I'm going to generalize here. <laughs> it, 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 it can't be written as if it's, you know, for rounds for a doctor. It's got to be simple. It's got to be to the point. And then as we dug deeper, there's conflicting literature on breastfeeding, um, pot smoking with breastfeeding. I, I'm not even going to remember what the literature is, but I, there was no consensus at the table if they should breastfeed when they're pot smoking or not breastfeed because of the conflicting literature. And I said, okay, if you in this room can't figure that out, why are we putting out this pamphlet until we figure out what's the standard? So it was things like that that you think, well, how is a patient, um, you know, what detail can I give? Well, that's just common sense, but I was the only non-medical person. So I'm looking at it from the patient perspective. 
and with your PR lens on because you have that that neat twofold perspective to look at that from patient and from PR. And I have to say the fact that I have 20 years of PR background and experience has been everything. Um, not saying if you don't have it, you can't advocate. Don't get me wrong. But I now do patient advocacy consulting. So I now work with hospitals and healthcare systems. And I work with the medical team on how to incorporate patient voices in a meaningful way. And then I do workshops with patients and patient advisors on how to tell your patient's story because a lot of patient stories are emotional. You don't share your story unless you're really upset about something or you're really happy and there's a lot of emotions. But what can get lost are the facts. What can get lost is what's the point of your story. Is there a call to action? Who is your story directed to? Um, how do you change that story? So my public relations has helped so much. And the feedback I get when I do these workshops is, oh my gosh, I've been telling my patient's story for 10 years and I never thought to change the story based on who the audience was. Or another healthcare system said, we, do, we start meetings with a patient's story but the patient's story, they've never thought to ask for a story that's relevant to the work that, that um, committee is doing. So a childbirth story may not be so relevant to a medical imaging committee. Mm. What's, what's a medical imaging story? So they're not realizing that they should be digging deeper and trying to connect the story or what's the major problems that healthcare systems having is it discharge find a story about discharge so making it a little bit more meaningful so it's interesting because as i'm listening to you talk about being the patient and advocating for yourself i i want to share a little bit about my pain story because when i i was always and i know you know about this already cynthia but I was always trying to be on in public. I had my media appearances. I had my big Fortune 500 clients who I was going to serve. And I was in such severe pain in the background that there was no even, right? There was on alley and there was off alley and there was nothing in between. And I was so exhausted and in so much pain that by the time I got into the privacy of a doctor's office at the hospital, I would lose it. Like mm. literally like one time, like hyperventilating paper bag, like I'm in trouble losing it because I was so overwhelmed with how uh, the severity of pain, but also how it was limiting my life. And then it was causing all of this, this angst and this hatred that I had that was fueling how I was showing up because I was in so much pain and I was so angry at the surgeon who had, you know, at the time my languaging was butchered me. And I just want to highlight for patients through this because I know in hindsight, like how much do I wish that I would have had access to your book and your knowledge then? Because in hindsight, because the surgery had been so screwed up from what it originally was supposed to be, doctors could never understand how what happened happened. And mm, so... Yeah. 
I was too emotional to explain it in a factual step-by-step -step way. And then when you're, you know, 30 doctors deep, right? Now you've got a neurologist, now you've got an anesthetist, now you've got a new one, now you've got another one, now you've got another one. And I couldn't keep explaining. And I was so emotional that they, many of them didn't get it. And they tune, they can't, when you're dealing on an emotional level, it's really difficult because that's when the walls go up. That's when your walls go up. That's when their walls go up. Um, and it's, but there is a place for emotions. And I always say to patients, name the emotion, name it. You know what? I know I'm, I'm getting upset right now because I'm really frustrated and I have to tell you what's frustrating me. And people seem to respond better when you name that and work through that with them. And in my book, Your Child's Voice, I wrote it because I've been advocating for my son. I am living a life that I didn't even ever anticipate. I have a 40-year-old brother who's autistic. So I've lived it with my parents, watching them advocate in the 70s and 80s when there was no term advocacy. And I see patients struggle. I see parents struggle. And I thought, God, if there was only a book, a way of helping people figure out the different steps. And just like Bed Rest Mom, my Bed Rest Mom book is the first book ever written in Canada on pregnancy bed rests, which is crazy that it took till 2018. And is so, that book available internationally? Because our listenership has actually grown international here at the Resiliency Ninja podcast. Uh, can they get it on Kindle or is it just by order? No, it is everywhere. Trust me, awesome. I, Google, I Google myself. Okay. <laughs> so if you are joining us from Australia or anywhere else in the world, you can get that if you're on bed, bed rest. I think that's fantastic. And Amazon, of course, has it sure. everywhere. And so when, with your child's voice, I want it to help people understand. And it's not just for parents with children. I mean, like you said, you would learn a lot of just creating your own binder. I like the old school paper and putting it together and having tabs in it and having those reports and having any findings. And so that everywhere you go, you can have that with you. And what are the key points or, and finding, I call it a case manager. Who's that one person that's going to manage your case? Is it your family doctor for children? Is it the pediatrician? Is it a specialist? But they, you can't assume that they know they're doing that. That's a conversation. Are you going to help me be the case manager here? Because what happens, and I suspect it happened in your case, is all these different tests are being done and all these different reports and all this different paperwork generated. But one person needs to take the big picture, not dealing with your cough, your colds, your flus, but the big overall picture, read all these reports and identify any gaps. Mm -hmm. And I find that's what's missing the way I look at advocacy was not giving up until you had an answer that was satisfactory. And, and doc documenting, documenting, right. okay. because you want to say, I have done this, I have done this, we have done this, we have done that. And the other documenting, documenting that people don't do, that it's always hindsight, 
is make notes. You know, I woke up today, I felt like crap. This, you know, I was walking through the store and I had a dizzy spell on this date and this time. Because when you date and time things, all of a sudden you might see different trends. And the other thing, especially when I look at raising a child with special needs, is the doctors will say, when did you first notice X? When did you start seeing X? How often does X happen? And I'm sleep deprived. I'm dealing with um, a child that needs extra care. I don't remember. And, but if I had, if I put just little scribble notes on the side of your bedside in a notebook, you could go through that and show it to a doctor. And when we've done that, it's, it speeds it up for them, the diagnosis as well. When, and, and that's so great, right? And I, I think maybe in the early stages, it's, you don't even realize you should be documenting things like a little bit, like you were saying with your son, you didn't know that there was a problem until age three. It's like, what's the trigger in a person's life to, to say, I need to start documenting? When you get that feeling that something's not right. And we all know when we get that feeling. And I have a friend that I interviewed in the book that as she was with her daughter, she always felt that something wasn't right. She didn't see her daughter reaching milestones at the same time as other children. Everybody around her dismissed it. Everybody. You're, you're just fussing. She's fine. Don't worry. You're, you're worrying. Oh, look, she made that milestone. Yeah. Six months or eight months or 10 months later. So then my friend started documenting because she thought, no one's believing me, but I do think something's wrong. And lo and behold, all that documentation, when she finally got in with a pediatrician who believed her, made the world of difference. It really helped speed up um, some of the um, assessments that she got. And yes, she does have a diagnosis and she does have some challenges. Do you find that the feeling that as a patient you get is that doctors don't believe you when, like you just said, your friend, <laughs> that, you know, they, they didn't believe her that something was wrong. Is that, has that been consistent throughout your journey of feeling that as well? Absolutely. When my first with, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I kept saying to my doctor, I, I just feel like something's wrong. Oh, you're a worry ward. Oh, you just had a miscarriage. Oh, da da. And she kept dismissing me. And I actually put myself on bed rest because I said, I came into her office one day. I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I can't commute an hour to work. I can't work a high stress job and be pregnant. I just, something is not right. I, I, I can't do this. And she said to me, she actually said this to me. You know, you better pull it together. You're going to be a horrible mother. (gasps) You you are such, you need to be able to multitask. And I just thought, forget, just give me the doctor's note. I'm out of here. So then when I found out that um, my placenta was on my cervix, which she had told me, but she told me it was no big deal. It would just move. Well, I later when I was transferred to an OB, when I bled, and the OB was sat me down and said, you have a life threatening condition, because at any point in time, I could have hemorrhaged and died. My, my baby could have died. And um, 
it was because that doctor just, you're right, didn't listen to me and didn't look at the severity of my condition because she figured it would move away. She figured my, that the cervix, the placenta would move from the cervix. And she didn't take into account what I was saying to her. I don't know if there are any other professions where you have your back up against the wall so much that being wrong, you can't be vulnerable as a doctor. You have she, to be right. Yeah. She never did admit it. Even after uh, a very uh, hemorrhaging childbirth and, and complications, she still said to me in my follow-up that it was a much ado about nothing. And she didn't know what the big deal is. And she'd never seen a patient fussed over more in her career than me. And I just thought, okay, it's time to get a new doctor. But well, my, yeah. Do you believe like in that moment as a patient, we're both fairly strong women, right? And yeah. so we'll stick up for ourselves and keep going and pushing. And I think that that's why we got through these journeys fairly unscathed, like, I mean, obviously difficult journeys, but we came out the other side. I think a lot of people would have backed down and oh, not yeah. stood up to that doctor. Well, and you know, when I've been advocating for my son, here's the sad part of it. I have talked to my, my son's um, doctors about this and his therapist, and they've told me there are children with far, far greater needs than my son who don't get a fraction of the support my son gets. And they said, the reason is nobody's advocating for that child. And what I see time and time again is either there's a fear of the doctors or the, or the therapists that they're the experts, so they must know everything. There's intimidation or let's be fair to these parents. They are exhausted. They are raising a child with needs. They are sleep deprived. They're probably working full time. And I know when my son was in daycare, every day I picked him up, he'd cry and scream the whole way home because he tried so hard to hold it together the whole day at daycare. As soon as he saw me, like you were saying, when you went to your doctors, he would collapse. And so I had just worked a stressful job full time and as soon as I got my child, the screaming started. And I never had five minutes to myself, which quite frankly is why I quit my job a few months ago and decided to focus on my writing and my patient advocacy and my public relations as a consultant because I couldn't do it anymore. And so you recognize that for yourself because how do you? Like, like, what were you doing before? You, did you have any time? I know you're, you've got a husband who's supportive. And is he in the trenches with you in this? Or is it really something you're taking a hold of and you're leading the advocacy piece? He is, he's amazing. And it's, it, we really are a team. He lets me do the talking. I'm the one that's advocating. But he, it's interesting because he's much quieter than me. And we'll be in these meetings at the school for the individualized education plan for my son. And I'll be doing all the talking. And then my husband will say something. And it's one of those really aha moments, these quiet, reflective thoughts. And so it's important to work as a team. But I have friends that are single parents who 
are the only person and I, I just can't even imagine how they're getting through everything that a parent needs to do with raising the child plus advocating. And do you see people just giving up then like giving up too soon before they get an answer or before they get the diagnosis? What do you say to those parents? I would say you have to fight and it's not, but I would also say, remember there's a line between bullying and advocating. And actually one of my son's specialists asked me to write a chapter about that in my book, which I did because when you bully, it's, you have to do this. I need this done. Why aren't you doing this? And it's, it's with um, criticism, with blame, with, with negative emotions. Advocating is realizing you choose when to pick your battles. There are things that happen with my child that I let go either because I'm too tired or because I think I need to save my energy for something else. And there's other things that happen that I'm like, nope, this is where I'm taking a stand. This is where I'm going to put my energy. And with parents, they need to figure out what are the hills are ready to die on. What are the things that they want to advocate for? And if you know those different pieces, it helps you because you don't feel like, oh gosh, I have to fight all the time. It's not about fighting. It's not about bullying. It's about being your child's voice when they're little. And when your kid gets older, teaching them to be their own voice and then you being their megaphone when there's a problem. So Mm. letting your child speak for themselves. But if you need to come in and be a megaphone, you can be your child's megaphone. Love it. And then the last thing I want to ask you about, because I know we're, we're over our intended time, but the kindness. I, I have really found that the doctors who I have been kind to, who I have, and the nurses, who you don't attack. And that's where when you said there's a fine line between advocacy and bullying, kindness has been probably the reason I've received such incredible healthcare over the last 12 years. And that would be our case too. And and that would be, and I've actually had people from my son's team say, we're, we're an amazing family to work with that they're just yesterday, his speech language pathologist was saying, she just so enjoys working with our family. And you're right. It's about respect because if somebody's not respectful to you, whether it's the clerk at the grocery store or a client you're not going to want to work with them. So it is about kindness. I do drop off things at Christmas, um, little things. It doesn't have to be big. Bake a dozen cookies. I make a point of thanking them. um, And I really try to see them as human beings. I've gotten to know his pediatrician. I know she has a daughter. I know what age she is. And we talk as mothers before we talk as patient doctors. Mm. That's wonderful. So now how are you helping people? I know you're working with the hospitals, consulting, creating patient advocacy programs. Is that what you're doing? So a hospital could reach out to you? Yeah, or I'm, I'm working with hospitals that have patient um, advocacy to look at how are you using those patient voices and to drill a little bit deeper and with hospitals that um, 
have patients on committees, well, are they a seat at the table just to be filled or are they an active voice? And how are you making sure that you're getting the best out of them? And I'm working with, um, I'm also doing speaking. I'm doing a, a talk next month for parents of children with mental health issues about advocating. So like you, I love going out to speak to organizations and at conferences to talk about bringing patient voices in to transform healthcare. And if you read The Power of Kindness by Dr. Brian Goldman, it talks about how it's proven, and this is a great point, over time, the longer a healthcare provider has worked in the system, the less in tune they are with the patient's pain and the less empathy they have. And by bringing patient voices into healthcare, it helps doctors, nurses, and providers get back some of that empathy because they can see the human interaction. And it's almost like they get jaded. Well, to survive in Dr. Brian Goldman's book, he talks about um, that's how they have to get through the shifts with the pain all around them is to tune it out. But by tuning it out, you're missing the cues that people are giving you that would help you in the diagnosis or the treatment. Right. Which is the problem. Uh, where can people find you and get more information? You can go to learnpatientadvocacy.com. And at learnpatientadvocacy.com, there's links to both of my books. And I have uh, a blog that I do about patient advocacy on there. And I'm always open to connect. Awesome. So I will be sure that we get all of those links put in the show notes. Thank you, Cynthia, for sharing your story and for giving us some great takeaways. I know this will help a lot of families that are out there. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So uh, thank you for listening and for joining us. If you love this, please be sure to share it with someone you know can use this message and who can benefit from it. It takes a nanosecond to push a five-star review. And you can also write a review by just throwing in a couple lines about what value you're getting out of the Resiliency Ninja podcast every week. As you know, I interview a guest like Cynthia and share some of the private stories behind the public success story. And on Fridays, do not forget to tune in for Cha Fridays, uh, the Resiliency Ninja, that's me. I will teach you something that will help you become more successful in business and or more resilient in life. So thanks for being here. Don't forget to subscribe, as I've already said. And until next time, embrace your obstacles because they will make you stronger. Thank you for tuning in to Resiliency Ninja with Allison Graham. We are thrilled to have you as part of our community. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always connect with Allison at r-ninja.com and find important links to show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, embrace whatever obstacles come your way. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.